Welcome guys to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm very excited to have another round table. Um, and we've got Dr. Eric Helms and Dr. Mike Isretel both in the house, um, which is super exciting. And we are going to be talking about muscle hypertrophy for bodybuilders specifically, um, because you have to be quite specific when you talk about many of these topics and principles. And we're going to be targeting progressive overload because this is such an important subject that we hear people talk about all the time. Um, but I think a lot of people aren't completely sure what it is or what it means um, and how to actually incorporate within our training plan. So um, if, first of all, Eric, if you want to go ahead and uh, define progressive overload and then Mike can kind of come in and decide whether he completely agrees, if he has anything else to add, um, and then we'll get uh, the discussion rolling from there. So. Um, and also, uh, hopefully you guys are both well. Um, I know the audience is very happy to have you on the show. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, good to see you, Dr. Israel. Um, and yeah, so to kick it off, progressive overload, pretty simply put, is exposure to a higher stress to, uh, than compared to where you were previously to elicit an adaptation. Uh, this can impact anything from going to a higher altitude while you're climbing and seeing changes in your oxygen transport capacity in your blood or like us meatheads care about uh, lifting more weight in the subsequent session or exposing our, ourselves to greater tension levels uh, or doing, doing more total work uh, to try to elicit a muscular endurance adaptation or to try to get more of that tension to, to elicit an adaptation and um, all all things in the body occur, well, not all things, but the things we care about in this podcast occur as a response to progressive overload. Um, and there are many ways to do it, um, but that's essentially the definition. And happy with that, Mike. Um, anything you want to add to that? Uh, I'm just kidding. That was sweet. How <laughs> to be that super technical guy that like, oh, you said progressive overload. It should technically be in just like one letter off. And you're like, oh, okay, it's kind of <laughs> So I think something um, important for the listeners to realize is I think they often chase load on the bar and they see only that as the only progressive, progressive element of progressive overload. Um, but Eric, you talked about lots of different ways you could progress. Um, for hypertrophy specifically, what do you think are the main ones that we can utilize as trainees? Awesome. First, I just want to recommend everyone to check out uh, Brian Miner's article, um, Do You Need to Progress a Load? Uh, or is load progression necessary for hypertrophy? That's the name of the article. Really, really good if you really want to get into the weeds. Um, because I think he, there's, there's a quote in there that I really, really like that gets to the heart of the matter. Your ability to put load on the bar is not a requirement for future overload. It's a result of previous overload. Because we've all seen the studies showing that you can grow very effectively with light or heavy loads if you were to take them to a necessary effort level, right? Close to failure in light loads case. So if you've been training exclusively uh, in, let's say, the six to eight rep range, kind of like your typical power builder, you're interested in strength, you're interested in hypertrophy, and uh, let's say you get an injury, or let's say you just don't have access to the same equipment, and you decide to use mostly high rep machine-based training, um, but you do more volume, you push yourself hard, you're going near to failure, you organize your, your training well, you do all the right things, uh, we know that you could get bigger. So obviously you've decreased the load across the board on everything, going from six to eight RMs to let's say 15 to 20, uh, and you start growing. We know, we know right there we're gonna have to necessarily progress load. What the person did get was progressive tension overload on the, indi on the individual fibers that needed to grow. So um, 
hypertrophy is about stressing muscle to make it have to grow. And you can achieve that through various ways. Um, you can do more volume of the same work to the point where you're actually getting adaptation. Um, but typically, uh, or, or you, you can increase load, you know, if, if you're uh, doing an adequate volume, that is a way to continually able to, to, to provide more stress. But I would say probably the two most important things would be um, effort in terms of practical things. So how hard are you pushing yourself in a set? And then the volume of the uh, of training. So doing enough training at a high enough effort level. Uh, and the one caveat there is that at higher load levels, uh, the effort is probably not quite as important because it's already heavy enough that you're getting enough tension immediately. So somewhere between 80 to 90% of 1RM in most studies uh, shows that you get pretty close to peak muscle fiber recruitment, or I should say peak EMG levels. Don't want to get killed by Andrew Vygotsky. That's technically not a, a way to measure uh, muscle fiber recruitment, but we are were, we were probably recruiting the vast majority of fibers and exposing them to something. So if you were to say you really just hated having free time, and you want to do 40 singles at 85% of 1RM, I do think that would actually provide a, a, a comparable stimulus to doing uh, 40 total reps of, of, a, of a moderately heavy load if they were near to failure. Um, so there's a time when you could get away with RPE like four and five training if you're starting heavy. I don't think that's the most time effective way uh, to, to do it and you're exposing yourself to a lot of heavy load, but theoretically you could do that and still grow. Awesome. So that kind of sounds like um, something I think Greg Nichols has come out with this kind of number of hard sets or kind of progressing the number of hard sets kind of, um, I guess, RPE, I don't know if you were to put a number on it, kind of seven plus or kind of reps in reserve, like the the least hard is going to be kind of four to three and then progressing up towards failure from there. Um, that would be considered, I guess, the overload threshold um, with enough load on the bar um, potentially. And is that the same for you, Mike? You along the same sort of lines of Eric in terms of for hypertrophy, those are the things you're looking to progressively overload. Hmm. I'm going to disagree here a little bit. Yes. And advance the scientific postulate, no, parable, theorem that goes if the bar ain't bending, you're just pretending. Eric, back to you. I'll consider this a victory in advance. You might as well just concede. I do agree that if the bar is not bending, you are probably pretending. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, I guess that's an important caveat and more of a, an overarching uh, theme, I would say, for, for everything we talk about. Yeah, in general. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, yeah, we actually will have to address that idea later. I would like to address that idea later, um, the overemphasis on load at the expense potentially of volume and uh, all, the, all the other stuff. Um, but I totally agree with everything Eric said, unfortunately, for the, for the, for the real emotionality of this debate. I guess it's good, it's good at this round table now, um, so we get to agree a little bit more. We're not like two fucking pit bulls that really actually like each other, but people are like, come on, fight. And there's a crowd, they're cheering. And they're, <laughs> you know, that's how I see these things. So, um, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Uh, I could get into my own little diatribe of what, what I consider to be overloading parameters if you're interested in that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, you roll with that. That's brilliant. Cool. So I think the number one consideration for overload 
just to make this uh, a little bit more of a general to specific discussion, is specificity. So in the Scientific Principles of Strength Training book, which is very transferable, though not completely, to hypertrophy training, I think the most important training variable in any context is specificity. Right? Because if you see, just say overload is hard and harder and harder, true, but what, what if you're doing 15-mile run, then a 20-mile run, then a 25-mile run? You're going to get less jacked every time you do that. Right. So number one is specificity. And I think there is a little bit of a confusion in some circles with a specificity towards getting stronger versus getting bigger. The training is very similar, but it's not always the same. So you first got to be like, OK, everything I'm doing in the gym, as far as how I apply overload, has to be hypertrophy centered. But the goal is muscle growth. Taking that into account, you got to consider a couple of things. Um, first of all, you have to figure out what it is, what variables are actually uh, uh, sort of contributing to overload. Like what exactly are you going to be overloading? Uh, volume, I think in what I would consider in, in, uh, in sequence of their order of importance, I would say volume is most, most important to overload for hypertrophy. After that, repetitions and reserve or relative intensity is the next most important. Uh, after that, load is the next most important. Notice load, in, in my view, is ranked third, not first, like some individuals uh, you know, uh, would say that you just got to keep getting stronger. They're very correct, but I wouldn't say completely correct. And then lastly, uh, it's sort of like metabolite kind of overload, like just more of a burn. A lot of that is going to come from volume and relative intensity already, but uh, with specific metabolite techniques like um, you know, occlusion and things like that, if you can just get more metabolite sequestration, however you measure that by proxy, um, I think that's another way to overload. So those four parameters, I would consider the main overload parameters. Am I coming in clearly or can you guys hear me okay? I've been having computer troubles lately. Too much downloaded pornography <laughs> is the usual culprit. So uh, I'm just kidding. I don't use, use that smut, right? So um, after considering, okay, these are the things I'm overloading on, you got to uh, really make sure you find a bottom end and a top end for what we'd like to call the overload threshold, right? Like short of some values, you're just really not doing a whole lot of overloading. So uh, for the volume landmarks, like the minimum effective volume, or others have called it the minimum effective dose, like you don't go in and say, okay, I'm going to do four sets of squats this week, but hold up. I'm going to do five sets next week. People are like, holy shit, you're going to get huge never because you got to do maybe at least eight sets of squats or something, eight sets of quads, maybe tw 10 or 12 for a lot of people to even start to see muscle growth, right? So you got to pick a bottom end with reps in reserve. You know, what do you think, Eric? Four or five reps in reserve is kind of like a, a real world average bottom end. Uh, below which you can't really guarantee outside of very heavy loads that people are going to get much of anything. Like if I do my 30 RM for sets of 10, how many sets of 10 is going to get me jacked? The reality is like maybe way more than otherwise. What, what do you think, Eric? Yeah, I would say somewhere like an RPE 5, so like 5 reps in reserve. Like you said, yeah. unless you're going heavy, then like I said before, you could cluster yourself to growth, but have a yeah. life, you know? To, uh, for sure. <laughs> you know, one thing like uh, for, for, for people listening to this, I think um, my uh, easy real recommendation, because some people think, so what the fuck is RP5 or RAR4? What is that even? How do I know that? I'll tell you guys, it's really simple. When shit starts to feel challenging, that's when you're growing. Like if you can get through a set of 10 bicep curls, do this, 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 put it down and be like, all right, growth, like, nah. like it's got to, your reps got to slow down at some point. You got, it's got to be a bit of a pain in the ass. Like if it's never a pain in the ass, 
you're probably not growing. And that's like kind of a, comes back to a fundamental sort of physiological law. Like unless you're disrupting the homeostatic values of the system, unless you're challenging the system, it's probably not going to grow much. It's not going to respond. Like you don't get stronger moving, you know, 60 kilos around at really high velocities. Like you, you got to put more weight on the bar if that's your max is higher. It's got to grind against you. If you're not feeling the weight at all, if you're not feeling a burn, if you're feeling nothing challenging, you're probably on that relative intensity a little too too low. So, you know, we have an RAR bottom end of maybe RAR four or five. Then we have a top end, right? So top end for volume would be MRV, right? You don't go past what you can recover, but it's insane. It doesn't make any sense. Top end RAR is probably failure, or I would say on compound moves, one rep short of failure, because you can train squats to failure, but you got to have some primo training partners for that and probably a like lack of a willingness to live. Um, so I think that's the top end range you're working for, right? And then once you have that, you have to pick logical leaps from the bottom slowly towards the top through your mesocycle. And however long your mesocycle is, how, how long you think it's going to take for fatigue to accumulate until you hit your MRV, you're going to kind of know, okay, I'm going to overload for five weeks. So I'm going to start at RER4 and go all the way to RER1, or I'm going to start with, you know, 60 kilos on the bar and go 62.5, 65, 67.5, 7.8 load or whatever. Um, and, and that's basically the overload structure. Now, can you take lighter days and lighter sessions and do some DUP in there? Absolutely. But the average intramesocycle trend has to be going that way. Um, I think, um, Eric, I'd love to get your views on this and Steve as well. I think during sort of the, the, uh, the, science, uh, the, the modern U.S. scientific rebirth of DUP, some people seem to think, and I think Mike Zordo has cleared this up really well uh, in a couple of Facebook posts, actually. Um, a lot of people were like, oh, like you use linear progression. You're a fucking idiot. Like fundamentally your training has to have some linearity like it's gotta go that way like you gotta go there you can go this way that way in between but the shit's gotta go that way so people would like i would write a program and be like i see that you increase your weights like every week i'm like yes and they're like but isn't that i'm like what? do you want to decrease that like i don't know what's going on right there's something something has to go up so i think if you're hitting those basic uh, targets um, I think there's a lot of wiggle room for different details and how you go about it within each mesocycle. And the last thing I'll say is um, there should be a plan of mesocycle to mesocycle. Maybe you're going to overload different qualities. Like maybe you're going to preferentially train faster twitch muscle fibers in uh, one mesocycle where you go pretty heavy, not a ton of metabolite stuff. Then the next mesocycle, you may preferentially train more slow twitch muscle fibers or train the fast twitch for more of the metabolite angle. So you do much higher volumes, higher reps, but not as much weight, something. So you got, you got to consider every time you do a mesocycle, uh, you know, unless it's a special case mesocycle of just very recovery oriented, there's got to be some kind of overload parameters and they don't always have to be the same. I think a lot of people get carried away with this where they go, okay, I squatted, you know, 120 kilos for sets of eight in my last mesocycle. In this mesocycle, it's got to be 120 kilos for sets of nine, or it's got to be 125 for sets of eight. Otherwise, it's just a total disaster. And you could alter so many variables and somehow meet at least one of those criteria for overload and still succeed in producing hypertrophy. It doesn't have to be this crazy linear attempt to try to just squat, bench, and deadlift or whatever more for sets of eight until you know you your body breaks apart or something like that. Um, what do you guys think about that? Uh, any comments, thoughts, concerns? 
Well, I thought it was a really nice overview of your overall approach and structure to kind of what we are progressively overloading and potential ways of periodizing it and planning that out. Um, and obviously completely agree with the uh, the extra, kind of the DUP uh, scenario. I don't think anyone disagrees. And hopefully, um, I know you have a brilliant article. I'm not sure actually if you wrote it yourself, Mike, but over a juggernaut kind of, um, there is no kind of different periodizations, periodizations. So yeah, Greg and I wrote that together. So I'll make sure that's linked below again. Um, but I, I want to put it over to Eric to see if he has any other thoughts on kind of what you've said there, especially in terms of kind of the ranking. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head the ranking, Mike. Um, so I've, got it. I've, I've got it. Again. Luckily, I've got it written down. Yeah, volume, reps and reserve, a relative intensity, load, and then metabolite. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So – I think I probably largely agree, but for some slightly different reasons as we get into the more murky areas of hypertreat research that we just don't have clear data on or we don't have like the best data to, to make practical recommendations from. Um, uh, so, so with a load, it's, it's more of just kind of a like a, a, like a tax loophole as to why I don't 100% agree. It's more so that I, I just don't see like theoretically in, 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 in some kind of uh, world where you could know exactly the level of stress you were putting on, on a muscle. Uh, you could never progress load and keep growing if you could expose it to greater volumes of a high enough effort, and, but, but avoid actually increasing the load on the bar if you were able to take more sets to failure or something like that. I, don't, I think it's highly non-pragmatic. Um, and you would still end up getting stronger because hypertrophy does contribute to strength. So it's almost like if you're training exclusively for hypertrophy, if you grow enough, you will get stronger, but you don't necessarily have to put more load on the bar to keep growing, if that makes sense. Um, it does become highly impractical as, you know, with any given load, as you get bigger and as you get, as you're training to, to close to failure constantly and doing more volume, you're going to have this excellent muscular endurance. You know, how many reps you're going to do is going to keep increasing and inching further and further away. So it, it does become... Um, practically almost impossible to not use heavier loads on the bar to keep getting bigger. Um, and even if you look at some of the bodybuilders out there, there's IPB pros, so you never see do less than double digits, but they're still moving heavy-ass weight. Some of these guys are doing sets of 15 with 315 on bench, you know. Even though they're not trying to get strong on bench, no one would disagree that that's a strong bench, you know. So, so yeah, I, I would say for the most part I agree there. Um, and then as far as the metabolite, uh, accumulation, you know, that, that's an area we're still kind of scratching our head with a little bit. Some have postulated a very kind of rigid view that the only reason metabolite um, accumulation contributes to hypertrophy is because it lowers the threshold for recruit motor units and it helps you, uh, as you go close to failure, you see metabolite, metabolites accumulate. You have to cycle in higher threshold motor units and thus get more training of, of uh type two fibers that would normally only be working during a heavy set. So that's why per fiber level, whether you take a set of 20 to failure or you do a single with 90%, um, well, let's say three reps, 90% and that's to failure. Uh, you're going to see a similar recruitment pattern, not a pattern. You're going to still recruit everything eventually. Um, whether or not you're going to get an adequate training stimulus on those slow fatiguing fibers with three reps at 90%, or if they're just going to get turned on to help you lift that load, uh, or whether or not those high threshold motor units with the fast twitch fibers that are normally only being used for high velocity or high load training that are cycled in occasionally to keep that 20 RM set going are also getting enough training stimulus. That's another question. And I think we're 
we're just starting to drill into what whether or not high versus uh, low low load training preferentially recruits you know different types of fibers. And I think uh, Schoenfeld just wrote a speculative piece about that, which is interesting. With some some limited data to suggest maybe it does. Uh, so it's it's tough to say. I think. Um, I think there, there, it, it probably makes sense for you to cycle through different loading zones and repetition zones. I think you would probably not just want to be like, I'm only doing 8 to 12 all the time because my textbook says that's a hypertrophy range. I do think it probably makes sense to do some work in the 4 to 8 rep range and do some work in the 8 to 15 rep range for, for probably a, a decent example of what that might look like. Um, and uh, for practical application, I, I think you can do that mesocycle to mesocycle. I think you can do that within a week. You can even do it within the same day. Uh, and most people do all of a little bit of that. You don't see a lot of people doing four RMs on bicep curls, you know, because there's practical considerations on some movements that would make that either uh, potentially harmful uh, or, or just impractical or, you know, not, not as useful. So different movements uh, kind of self-select themselves towards different rep ranges. Um, and then you're, you're probably just going to, out of pure desire for some variation, not want to do always the same rep ranges on specific movements, at least not for too long. So I would say even in people who tend to like a little more structure, they might have different movements with different rep targets, keep it relatively the same and just try to add reps or add load and do that for six weeks. And they might switch things up either in terms of the exercise selection or just shift the repetition zone slightly up or slightly down. The six to eight becomes eight to 10. The four to eight becomes six to 10, whatever, you know? Uh, and I think there is absolutely nothing wrong with that for one. And you probably, it's probably a good idea to have some of that, uh, you know, variation in loading zones. If, if, if some of the postulations are indeed true, um, and even if they're not, it'll be more fun and it certainly won't be harmful to your training. Brilliant. Um, and I think something I did uh, kind of want you to touch on as well is Mike talked about kind of starting off with the minimum requirements of overload and progressing towards kind of the most you can do, um, kind of that kind of minimum effective dose towards maximum recovery volume type of scheme setup. Uh, do you have any thoughts or do you want to address any concerns within that kind of model? Um, I don't think that model is, is, is necessary, but I, I think it is, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, I think you, I mean, if we're in a practical sense, those thresholds are going to be constantly shifting and your ability to know where they're at depends on your definition of that. So if we go with what I understand, uh, Mike, your definition to be, it has to do with when you see a regression of performance in the short term. Uh, is that accurate? Oh uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a lot of things that can cause a, re a regression of performance, you know, so your, your increasing volume could be causing it, or it could be uh, poor sleep. It could be a nutritional change. There's a lot of variables that could go into your performance going down uh, to the point where I don't think in an acute sense, uh, let's say for one week, it is um, a useful marker for gauging whether or not you reach the volume threshold. If you were maybe there for two, three weeks, I could see that. Um, so I think the devil's in the details there. Um, beyond that, I would say I don't necessarily see the need to move from the minimum effective to the maximum 
um, within a, a mesocycle necessarily, although you could. And I think there's something to be said for, uh, you know, starting in a relatively low fatigue state, building some momentum and, and moving towards it and then assessing where you're at and then kind of starting that again. There's nothing wrong with that. I think like hypothetically, if you started in the ballpark of what was a, to use your terminology, is it a, is maximum adaptive volume that the peak of the curve where that's, if you do any more volume, you're not, it's not helping you anymore. So mm. if you, cool. So if you started in the ballpark of the maximum of an MAV, uh, and then you just focused on small progressions, uh, on things like adding a rep here and there, adding a small amount of load. Um, I don't see that being necessarily worse than starting, starting at a lower stress level and building up. Um, However, if you did not already have the work capacity for that, I could see you having to deload more frequently doing that. So I think that's probably, for, for practical reasons, a good idea to not spend too much time at the most stress that, that you can handle. Um, and then I know MRV is the point kind of over the other side of the hill, um, making sure I get my terminology right here. Uh, and that would be kind of like the top end and maybe something you can do to overreach. Is that accurate, Mike? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And overreaching is a funny one. You know, we don't have a ton of data on this. Um, and the question basically comes down to um, the curve of, of, a, of a stimulus and an adaptation becomes a bell curve largely because we think you can't recover from doing additional stress. Right. So it's a recovery issue. So does that mean that we actually could perform more if we could recover more as we go over that hump? And that's kind of the theoretical underpinning of an overreaching cycle is we're going to push past that point where it seems helpful in the short term, and then we're going to do something to allow recovery. And we think you're going to get the stimulus that you would have had had that, 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 that hill been a straight line. Um, but I think it's actually quite difficult to do work uh, and enough to, to actually impose that stress to grow uh, to the level where you theoretically would if you could recover because you're not recovered. So it's kind of a catch-22. And I think a lot of what we see as uh, the benefits of overreaching, it's not like super compensation per se. It's just a dissipation of fatigue, seeing where you actually were. Um, and I don't know how effective overreaching is, especially for something like hypertrophy. Uh, so... Yeah, I'm not, that, that's, that's probably the only practical dissimilarity I would have with uh, some of the things I've heard Mike talk about is I don't see a huge need to push deep towards MRV. Um, and I think it is useful uh, to work towards higher levels of stress, uh, which would be from MEV to MAV in a cycle, but not necessary. I do think if you have a training history where you're uh, acclimated to a high level of stress or, or the level of stress that would be at MAV, you could hang out in that ballpark, make small adjustments and take cyclical deloads and you'd be fine. Um, just because I'm, I'm a history buff, uh, I was reading stuff about some of the guys training in the forties and fifties. And sometimes they would just hang out at the same weights, uh, with, with their kind of power builder style, heavily compound barbell dominated trainings so their weightlifting, powerlifting, bodybuilding, sort of all the same thing at this point. And they would just stick with the same weights and stick with similar amounts of reps for each set, similar total volume, and just kind of watch as their RPE dropped over time. And then they'd make an incremental load, uh, load increase and continue. And I'm not saying, you know, Steve Reeves, no matter what he did, was, was perfect. I'm not saying that at all. Um, but 
I just, I find it interesting that when you're dealing with an advanced lifter or an advanced bodybuilder and you're kind of watching paint dry to see yourself grow, especially if you grow free, uh, that you can be in the ballpark of your maximum adaptive volume and still there's not a lot's going on. You know, you, there is some growth, but it's just going to take some time. And I think sometimes we, we try to juggle a lot of balls and do a lot of different things. And I don't know that it's all necessary. I think sometimes it's just a matter of finding where you consistently put in enough hard work at an adequate volume level. And then if you can find some outcome measure of, of progress in the weight room, uh, that is appropriate to what we talked about, uh, you know, on that hierarchy, then something's probably going right. Um, so, so yeah, that was kind of a ramble, but that's my thoughts. No, I, I really enjoyed it. And it sounds very much like it's not that you completely are, like many people might think, completely opposed to what Mike's suggesting. It's more of a, you think something very similar could produce an equal result and it might not be necessary to go down the route of the minimum to the maximum. Um, I do want to give Mike an opportunity to kind of comment back to anything uh, Eric said there. If there's anything, uh, maybe, I don't know, if there are any terms to find wrong or anything along those lines, Mike, um, if you want to go for that. Yeah, sure. So going way back to when Eric was talking about the importance of load potentially being more than where I ranked it, um, the only reason I put load third uh, on the overload rankings is because without a necessary volume, you're just really not going to grow much. If you really undercut your RIR, but for special conditions, you're really not going to grow much. The load is less important because there are multiple loads at which you can grow, and load progression thus is not as important. Um, contrary to the idea that there are multiple volumes at which you could grow, there's a lot of volumes at which you can't grow, but there's a ton of loads at which you can grow if you get your RIR and your volume correct. So the only reason load ranks third, in my opinion, isn't to detract from its long-term necessity for it to go up, but it is simply because it's just, it's just outranked by volume and RER because if you mess those things up, then you're just, just doing nothing. It's almost like, um, you know, what's more important to having a car that works, wheels or an engine? Well, it's wheels because it doesn't matter what kind of engine you have. There's nothing to move. But does that mean an engine is somehow not important? Oh, my God, no way. And, and insofar as you have wheels – the kinds that you have don't matter much. Now the engine matters more, right? But they just have to be set in stone to go anywhere. So volume and RIR is kind of, they have to be there. And then the load manipulations over the long term are probably actually at least as important, if not more so. Um, one of the things, in, in, again, in support of Eric's views on the importance of load in the long term, I am starting to believe that especially very fast twitch fibers the at least the efficiency with which they are trained with very high reps close to failure is poor. When you think about it, 27 of your 30 reps could really be doing dick for your fast twitch fibers. The reps 28, 29, 30 could be. Geez, that's a whole lot of work for very little fast twitch fiber hypertrophy. And let's consider a couple of things. Some individuals genetically are fast twitch dominant. For them, such training is going to be really not that great. They could be hitting their MRV of volume way before they hit their maximum adaptive proclivity for fast twitch fibers because the fast twitch fibers are going to be like, dude, we're still good to go. We can still do double the work. But your overall systemic stress is massive because you've been doing hundreds of reps just to get into the range uh, of even stimulating your fast twitch fibers sufficiently for them to get uh, a growth response. Another point, 
faster twitch fibers tend to grow more in response to hypertrophy training. So why would we select a very high repetition protocol and only push volumes and reps where we know that faster twitch fibers probably respond better to higher uh, loads, progressive overload on load, and they're the ones that are going to grow the most anyway. So if you have to choose a strategy for long-term growth, you better feed those fast twitch fibers a lot unless you have really slow twitch just genetically. You're like an ultra runner beforehand or something then you might have a problem. But I think it's it's good to consider in the long term, you really want to make sure that at least at some points, you're getting your fast twitch, your faster twitch fibers, the kind of training that's more optimized to them. Because first of all, they're going to be composing, if you're 50-50, we just assume you're 50-50 fast slow, which the average individual sort of is, um, you growing your fast twitch fibers is fundamentally more important than growing your slower twitch fibers. So whatever training average strategy you use has to reflect that the faster twitch fibers are more important in your training. And for them, I think you can progress them and get them bigger with a volume and RAR only progression. But I think a load progression for them just works better. Like, uh, and as we have every reason to believe this is the case, although of course it's not certain, you know, if we're taking educated guesses here and you're saying, Hey Mike, and Eric, let's grow your fast twitch fibers for this guy. We're going to look at each other and be like, put more weight on the bar over the next several months or years. They're going to grow. We're not going to be like, just do a shitload of volume and go RIR really high. Because it could be like, hey, his slow twitch fibers grew a lot, but his faster twitch fibers, eh, they grew some. Right? So, I, and another concern. So, let's say we pick a rep range. That's Eric's example of, you know, like the, the, the weird way of just going 8 to 12 and sticking in that rep range and just forever for, you know, obviating all load variation. Even that... In order to stick the 8 to 12 range, you have to increase load because you're going to exit the 8 to 12 range. Sooner or later, you're doing sets of 15. You're going to have to use more weight. And in order for my earlier example, for the super high rep training, not to get super crazy like sets of 40 and 50, where, again, your efficiency is radically reducing. And I don't just mean this from an efficiency perspective of, like, well, you're spending too much time in the gym. Because some fucking bro is always going to be like, whatever, brother, you fucking sacrifice for the iron, fucking steel, bro. I'm in here 24-7. Who gives a shit? I'll do what it takes. That's nice, but again, systemic fatigue is going crazy while stimulus of the relevant fibers is an incrementally smaller fraction. So you're going to have to use more weight on it. Like if you told Eric to go into the gym and be like, we got 20-pound dumbbells, get your chest as much hypertrophic stimulus as possible. He's going to be like, Jesus Christ, here we go. Sets of 100 or something. It's just a huge uh, – the relative effort to the hypertrophic stimulus starts to really get really fucked up. So, uh, and yes, lower weights do impact fatigue less than higher weights uh, until you get into these maniacal volumes and the relative stimulus is just even for slow twitch fibers, like the slow twitch fibers probably are stimulated, you know, closer to where the, the burn starts to happen and, and you're challenged. But like the first 10 reps of a 40 rep set, I don't think that's stimulating anything. That's more of a protracted warm up, right? That's just, just getting tired to start getting a stimulus and not even, you know, you get, you get tired in sets 10 through 20, right? So the first 10 are just like, I can just, I can, if I could take a pill just to get through these sets, I would just do that, right? So um, it's one of those things where, from the perspective of training the faster twitch fibers preferentially, and making sense of that in, in a fatigue to fitness kind of ratio, you've got to increase weight on the bar. Like, uh, so I just, uh, the caveat I want to say is, you know, the, the quest for big quads from a 400 pound squat for reps uh, area may not be 600 squat, uh, squat for reps, but, but, it, but the quest for big quads from a 200 rep 
uh, 200 for rep squat is definitely in the 400 for reps direction. There's, there's no fucking get zig and zag and stay at 200 pounds and get bigger quads. Bigger, yes. Optimally biggest, no way. Um, Eric, do you? Can I move on? Do you largely agree with that assessment? Or what do you think about that? No, I, I would agree. I mean, my, my whole thing was practically you have to increase load. Theoretically, you wouldn't need to, but even the guy, like, it's the same example I gave with the dude who's doing sets of 15 with 315 on bench, really. Yeah. 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 I think, I think even, even theoretically, you do have to increase load if you want optimal growth. I think theoretically, it gets really hard to grow your preferentially the fast twitch, faster twitch motor units if you're really intent on just never using any heavy weight at all. You're even, I think, at a theoretical uphill battle there. Um, and then uh, let's see. So that would that covered the fast twitch. There's an interesting, I, so, okay, it's a huge caveat. I think this paper was authored by Jeremy Lenneke or however you say his name, which automatically in my eyes means it, it may just be pure moment. Who knows? I, I'm not a big fan of the guy. I was very public about that. I don't give a shit at this point. Um, if you're going to say insane shit, like two people don't get bigger after six months of training, you deserve um, to be assessed for your, or for your quality of intellectual output. But um, I think he has a paper out. This is not a, a super recent paper that they did post set occlusion and still noticed an enhancement or hypertrophic outcomes. So that's a very interesting, um, uh, very laser in focused, uh, ability to, to, uh, parse out whether it is a fiber recruitment effect or whether it is really a metabolite summation effect. Uh, brilliant actually by a way of going around it because what is happening is you're doing the sets normally and then you include after the sets. So if, if it's really metabolite sequestration, then you're going to grow from that too. But if it's not at all, if it's all, if it's all relative intensity type stuff, then it's not going to do shit. Um, they did show a hypertrophic increase, I believe, in the post-set metabolite sequestration um, or hypothetically, right, post-set occlusion. Um, things like that and taking all the evidence together makes me think that um, I'm at least gambling on metabolites being a thing. Now, um, do I have some uh, a good deal of respect for something like Menno Henselman's view that it's all just down to tension <laughs> um, and, and uh, you know, per fiber tension uh, and it's all artifact of that? Yeah, that could very well be the case. Um, I think either way, higher rep training with shorter breaks, et cetera, getting the burn is a good way to go about training on occasion, no matter what the mechanism is. We already know that kind of training causes growth. I mean, Brad's shown that, a bunch of people have shown that. Is it metabolites themselves? I think it is, and that's like a like a seventy thirty guess. You know, um, I'm willing to bet on it, but I'm not like it's fucking metabolites or it's nothing. Um, I think uh, I think it, there's something to that, which is why I still mention metabolites um, because I think if we just stop mentioning them altogether, we maybe you know it might sneak up on us when it doesn't have to. Uh, basically, like somebody's going to finally figure out metabolites work, and they're going to do like some kind of fucking intermittent fasting metabolite workout and be like, oh, exercise scientists said I was wrong, but this. You know, the, the guy exercise scientists hate or whatever. I thought I was, I thought like I was always Steve Hall, but, uh, you know, what do I know? Um, and then just on the um, lastly, to address the, uh, the volume landmark stuff that Eric had addressed, totally agree. You know, it's not necessary to progress from minimum effective volume to maximum recoverable volume to grow. I think it's a good choice to try to grow the most in a mesocycle, um, uh, particularly so. So is it? certain that coming close to your MRV and maybe just a little bit over every mesocycle, is, is it certain that that's going to, that there's an overreaching effect that's beneficial? No, it's absolutely not certain. 
do I think that there's a good argument for especially very advanced bodybuilders to have to really push things hard relative uh, volume and intensity wise to see any growth? Yes. I don't think you can just go in the gym and, and bang out sets and reps and grow as a very advanced lifter. I think you have to present really superlative stimuli. At that point, that's really the only thing growing you. On the other end, I think especially for beginner lifters and intermediates, um, actually in the Volume Landmarks book, we advise beginner lifters to go from their minimum effective volume to two thirds of their MRV, stop, deload, repeat. Because if you go from minimum effective volume, let's say to, to halfway, um, you're basically for sure growing because by definition it's minimum effective volume. You're not growing super fast, but you are growing. You're accumulating very little fatigue. The injury risk is minuscule compared to any other kind of volume of training. It's basically like free gains. There's very low risk gains. Why not get them? You know, like, can you stay around uh, a maximum adaptive volume and make microloading improvements or microscopic vo volume improvements from there? Totally. Um, but why miss out on that MEV uh, to MAV window there? I mean, it's easy gains. Um, and, and at the very least, you can build momentum and then hang out at, at, at MAV for a while. But I think at least periodically, you got to go back to MEV because it's really good. It's easy, good stuff down there. You guys want to know actually how I started the thinking process uh, that that was going to have to be a good thing? It was the first volume roundtable with this motherfucker, Eric Helms really got at me and being like, you shouldn't always be training that close to MRV. And I was like, this motherfucker's right. So I did a shitload of thinking, tons of theorizing, tons of literature reading, talked to Broderick Chavez, talked to James Hoffman. And we figured out that if you go between MEV and halfway up, we don't want to just ignore that. So um, I totally, I totally agree, Eric, that just hanging out at MAV-ish is a fine way of doing things. But I think we have to be very vocal about telling people that that's not the only way to do things. And there could be some really good benefits because some people, like, let's be honest, some people, the reason they're never going to go down to MEV and cycle back up is because they don't want to go in the gym and do just eight sets of shit. They want to fucking smash it. They want to get sore. They want to feel like they're, they're training. But they're missing out on, first of all, momentum. And second of all, just free money, this free gains down there, man. I know it doesn't feel like you're training that hard, but especially for beginners, that's good stuff. Because what does every beginner want to do in the gym? They want to come in and vomit, like German volume training. Like if I don't bleed meat out of my eyes, clearly I'm just not training hard enough. But the reality is if you want the, you want to be jacked in the longest term, as big as possible, you want to do the least you can when the least still works. I'm very much a believer that advanced athletes need to pull just heaven and earth to grow. And there's no MEV for advanced athletes because their MEV is like up in, in MRV anyway. There's this no. tiny little window up there. But when your window is big, get those easy gains. Recycle most mesocycles down to MEV and slowly work your way back up. That gives you a long, productive mesocycle. And I think it just um, it makes sense. Basically, the, my argument is never that just hanging around MAV is bad. It's great. But what is the argument against? Like if I was like, Oosh, why don't I go back down to MEV? What argument would you have to tell me not to do that? That's a good strategy. Mm -hmm. That's my piece. Thoughts? No, I totally agree. Yeah, I, um, I really only brought up the hanging around MAV so I want to make sure my terms right um, as saying you, you could do this, but I don't, I don't think totally. it, it always makes sense to be doing um, the most you can do to produce the most gains. I, I think it, you know, I mean, maybe you just don't have to slide down as far, but uh, I a hundred percent agree that um, novices and, and even early stage intermediates who get a big boost of, of uh, growth or performance from small amounts of volume should take advantage of that. Uh, they're, 
in, in the real world, those are specifically the people who will not take advantage of it. But theoretically, they should. <laughs> um, man, I remember the first two years of my training, easy sets were the ones I just went to failure and didn't go force reps afterwards. <laughs> so, yeah. So my RPEs were, were negative values for a solid year and a half. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't know how well that advice would have, would have been given to me uh, or how well I would have taken it rather, but I 100% agree if I had someone who was 15 and I started lifting weights with them, um, we'd, we'd work on technical efficiency doing enough and it'd be relatively short workouts three times a week. And then whenever we started to stall, we, we would make a significant change. But, um, but yeah, I, I think, uh, I, I agree with everything you said there. And, uh, thanks for the shout out on the, on the, on the original volume round table. Appreciate it. Yeah, that's actually, um, that's, that's definitely a thing that, um, that volume round table per se, and just every discussion, even like not direct discussions that we have, but on other podcasts, people are like, I heard Eric Helms said you're an idiot. And I was like, all right, any more clear advice? And they're like, well, he said that you're wrong, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's always great to hear um, uh, sort of intelligent feedback from other thinkers in the field versus um, either underhanded comments or just like sort of thoughtless criticism. Like, um, uh, you know, and, and, and I know that Eric, you're, you're very good terms with Lyle and I have the utmost respect for Lyle, but some of his feedback is like, you're gay. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> like, I don't know what to go. Sure. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, and, and there's other individuals like Lyle, but with one tenth of his intellect, which you're like, mm -hmm. like, I've literally gotten feedback. Like, I don't like Mike's bullshit MRV stuff. And I'm like, why don't you like it? And they're like, Cause man, you just got to add weight to the bar. And I'm like, Hey man, that was super intellectual. You know, that never actually occurred to me. So, uh, thank you for that. So it's one of these things where I'm, I'm just super, uh, super glad that we have, uh, individuals in the field that, uh, you know, exchange ideas and can sort of actively critique one another to be like, I think you're mostly right, but what about this kind of shit? For sure. No, it's, uh, I always, you always, that's one thing I respect the hell out of you. And this is going to basically turn into a, um, a low fest now, but I've always respected how well you respond to people who disagree with you. Um, so, <laughs> so I think he just flashed me as his groin. Is that what, am I getting a cam show now? This is amazing. Um, yeah, thanks for that. So yeah, I, uh, I, I, I think from the, the, I've only publicly like disagreed with you a, a handful of times, uh, with you, you there most of the time just talking smack behind your back. Um, but every time you've been there, you, you've always responded, you know, very well. And, uh, I can see the willingness and the desire to, to change your mind. And I hope I've shown that as well, because I, I feel the exact same way. I just want, I, if I can butt in, I just want to say, I completely agree. Both of you are highly respectful. Um, and it's amazing to see this back and forth. And that's exactly why um, I want to get you on for these roundtables because I know you're just discussing it in a very professional manner and also hopefully people, not only the audience will take something away from it, but you might end up talking about something that you hadn't spoken about before. So yeah, massive thank you for that. And, um, oh, go for it, Mike. This is really bad news, what we're doing here, because you guys know people are going to stop watching these things and it's all a fucking love fest. <laughs> got to reinvigorate, man. It's got to be beef. It's got to be beef. We got to figure out, Steve, figure out how we can beef still. Well, I do um, have so. oh. Well, I, I, there's something I, I think we've disagreed with on the past. What do you see as the role of um, muscle damage as a variable that one should try to play with and train? Damn, here we go. Um, Steve, are we clear to talk about this? 
Yeah, well, my next was to talk about kind of monitoring and assessing how we are at this kind of maximal adaptive volume or where we are in terms of our kind of um, capabilities and our performance and if we're progressing. So this is actually lays into that because I know that is a factor that you take into consideration, Mike. Sure. Yes, I'll um, respond to Eric first. Um, I'm willing to entertain the idea that muscle damage is either unimportant or counter counter-valuable to uh, progression and adaptation. Um, I find that to be a, a very uphill battle um, because of physiological rationale. Um, the experience of most individuals that have trained over long periods, especially when adaptations become difficult, um, and some direct research on the subject. Um, so uh, damage from training, you know, so we have some good re research reasons to believe that loaded stretching, for example, is a hypertrophic stimulus. I don't see many mechanisms by which that could work other than damage. Um, I have some serious, not methodological problems, but inferential problems with the Dama study, which I'm sure is going to be brought up sooner or later. Um, so I think that studying damage and hypertrophy in beginners is a very perilous task because to put it in my stupid volume landmarks stuff, beginners have such low maximum recoverable volumes that three sets of 10 several times a week is damn near at their MRV. It's a huge systemic shock. And to take an idea that I initially got from Eric Helms and uh, pondered uh, for a long time, I think there is a point at which you're getting your the sort of most uh, volume that you can do and still benefit from the most. And then you can do more volume than that, but you're making a trade-off of recovery to adaptation. So your body only has a certain amount of resources to give to either recovery or adaptation. You, if you do a some level of volume, which you know is at MAV-ish, after that, any further adaptation uh, that you're getting is going to be impeded because you're using more and more of that adaptive pool of resources to recover because your body's like, Oh, totally. I'm going to make gains. Wait, hold up. Holy shit. We have all this damage to clean up. Oh my God. Hold up adaptation. We got to deal with recovery first. And it's been shown pretty clearly that until and unless the recovery pathways are at least running adaptation doesn't seem to occur much at all. They've actually had some time course studies where like you recover first and then you adapt. If you train hard again while you're recovering, this is you're just not going to get any better at all. Um, which is why I think that ultra high frequency training misapplied it just on a side tangent is stupid because it's like, if you're still fucked up and super sore, you go squat again. Like, I don't even know why you're there. What is the point of that? Right. Um, so I think that we have to be very careful in beginner studies that we're not basically dosing everyone somewhere in the middle of that nasty zone of trade-off of recovery and adaptation. And so, so basically what I think with those studies is happening is we start maybe over here. And as the individuals get weeks and weeks more training, they move closer to here. And thus it looks like they grow more and more and more as they get used to the training because the shit was too much to begin with. If we take advanced or intermediate athletes and we start them with a very easy training and progress towards harder training, I think we're going to see the reversal of that trend where they get better and better the harder the training gets to that point where the damage is so excessive that it interferes, the recovery interferes with the adaptive processes. That being said, I, I cannot with all good conscience, seeing the evidence in total, come out and say things like, I don't, I don't think, Eric, you've said this, but 
other people have said like damage has nothing to do with growth and mm. you, you know zama study clearly shows that you're, if you're getting any damage it's already too much that's fucking insane if you plan on getting bigger without ever getting delayed onset muscle soreness without ever getting some kind of twinge or tweak you're just not going to grow like that at some point any volume between your minimum effective volume and your mrv is going to cause some degree of muscle damage and, and if you're trying to minimize it by going closer to mev you're literally programming to get the minimum results possible I think the beginner situation, because of the fact that there's so new to training, is a major confounder to that. Um, that's my thoughts on the muscle damage situation. Uh, so just really quick, um, I don't think that damage is a one-to-one -one relationship with growth. I think it's a, a U-shaped curve where some damage either causatively, the damage itself causes growth, or correlatively that you, this is just the workload that's going to make you better and it brings with it a certain necessary amount of damage. Um, I think that's uh, you know the best amount of training or so, so most of your training should sort of give you that much damage. Um, and then uh, too much damage is definitely a negative. So it's not like, like if you can go in there and piss blood after training like you're doing a good job um and, and just really quick lastly so so there's the stretching under load uh, evidence for damage and then there's the um the demonstrations of a decrease in hypertrophic outcomes with NSAIDs. Um, uh, it seems to be that they're reducing uh, the development of damage, of secondary uh, immune-mediated damage, uh, and, and also uh, hampering hypertrophy. I don't think that that's an accident. Don't think. It could be, but, uh, but I think that there's thus some kind of evidence that some amount of damage is at, at the very least required uh, or just um just comes with the growth uh from that occurs from just uh, attention and volume and and i think there may be even a causative variable there where some literal damage causes downstream growth sweet so we disagree on something this works this works great um, so yeah i think i'm gonna work backwards from what you said just because it's freshest in my mind um because like you, I think I started somewhere in the, eh, how does this damage thing play a role? Uh, and I am open to, to different, uh, to change my mind. And I would say if, if you're leaning 70, 30 towards, I think damage has some beneficial role, I'm probably 30, 70. So that's about as far as we've gotten thus far. Um, so the NSA studies are, are interesting. Um, and the COX-2 inhibitors, they do more than just inhibit um, muscle damage repair, some of the downstream signaling from tension is also inhibited by an NSA. So the actual tension stimulus is also inhibited by it. So that, that's one of those where the NSA uh, outcome of it inhibiting growth in some studies, not all, is actually one of elderly people where it was beneficial. Now that probably has to just do more with baseline inflammation that you see in the elderly versus younger people. But, Agreed. Uh, I would say one, inflammation and damage aren't necessarily always the same thing, although they overlap. And two, an NSA, even if it didn't at all affect some of the muscle damage signaling, it does affect some of the tension signaling as well. So it could independently hamper muscle growth from resistance training. So that's a, uh, unfortunately not a, uh, something that really just tells you the, the answer. Um, which, by the way, going back to what you said earlier, I really would need to read that post-workout occlusion study because I do think that would be not a nail in the coffin, but a strong indicator that that, that metabolites do act, act causatively towards muscle growth. Well, it's a lot of key studies, so good luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, then going back to, to loaded stretching, again, I would say that is also tension. You know, it, it does cause uh, uh, damage. 
And um, like, like training, there's also a lot of studies that show training with full range of motion at, at long, long muscle lengths uh, is, is better for hypertrophy. And it also causes damage. But it's very difficult to know whether that's truly causative or correlative, like you said. And this is one of those where I don't know that we're going to have a really solid answer um, because it's almost impossible to, to do overload in organic tissue without causing damage. You know, um, you, you can compare concentric only to eccentric training. But then again, uh, we, we know that's probably not as good for, for what could be tension reasons as well. You know, there's, there's a ton of tension that occurs during the eccentric period and you can, you know, overload load more with an eccentric contraction because you're stronger eccentrically. So it's, uh, it's all of these things where uh, I, I don't quite know how to really answer this question. But what I do know that practically you run into problems with, with excess damage or, or even chasing damage, in my opinion. Um, so, for example, there's a study, I want to say it's Foley, 1998. Steve, I think I sent you uh, Chris Beardsley a little review of this a little, a little while ago. I thought it was interesting. Um, where they took... I want to say novices are untrained. I'm kind of spitballing here. I don't remember. But they had them do a lot of work to the point where it caused a lot of damage. And they actually got smaller after the first workout. So you can do so much that it is actually negative. And that's, that's kind of the same thing we know from volume. Um, but uh, a damaging muscle workout made them lose muscle. We also know that if you are heavily damaged, you can't produce as much force. You're not as strong. So your ability to produce overload can be inhibited. And then uh, what I would think the limits of what we can learn from Damascus, because I would say it has been um, over-speculated on, is that damage has got to be sorted out first before growth occurs. So the, the way I look at it is, right, I don't think we need to be chasing damage at all. I don't think we need to really think about it or pay attention to it otherwise than trying to minimize it. Because you're going to get damage. No way around it. If you're following all the recommendations we've talked about for effort levels, and volume, and then you know tertiary load and 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 uh, metabolite accumulation. Since we're more or less on the same page that those are all playing a role, damage is going to happen. But I don't think we should be using damage as a marker for success. Like I don't think your soreness tells you much, except with well, what's your training frequency and have you done this movement movement recently. I don't think um, damage is is causative. And if it is, it's only causative at very low levels to where if, if you get to the point where you're having detectable damage, it's not any better than having undetectable damage. We've got uh, that from, from a study that's decent in this, in this range. So in my mind, um, the goal should be overload and then trying to do things to minimize the negative outcomes of damage because some damage is going to happen if you're overloading. So that's why I'm always preaching things like intro cycles, um, you know, maintaining appropriate RIR levels, not going too crazy heavy on, on, on load or, or, uh, or volume, and uh, thinking about eccentric contractions and how they're going to play a role, and you know, do you really want to do RDL all the time, stuff like that, uh, and um, not completely trying to avoid it, but just really thinking about it from the perspective of, I don't want damage to interfere with my ability to overload, rather than seeing damage as a part of overload. So I think while we're probably both unsure of what the final role is that might result in slightly different applications. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's what I have to say. Um, I think that's all very reasonable. Um, I'm very skeptical about how one would go about, uh, reducing damage, but preserving all of the characteristics of hypertrophy specific overload, 
I think that you and I could probably both agree that you're dealing with very few variables of play there. You can't lower volume to prevent damage because you're killing the goose that lays the golden egg. You can't, and by lower, I mean like vastly lower. Like if you, right. you sat down and designed a workout that specifically tried to minimize damage, you'd be like, all right, what's the least damaging thing? Just not working out. Sweet, we're done. Zero sets, right? So okay, we can't do that. We got to do plenty of sets to grow. So then how do we minimize damage further? Well, you know, full range of motion training has been shown to cause more muscle damage due to the stretch component, et cetera. Let's get rid of that. Well, hold on. That's another part of hypertrophic stimulus has been shown as an independent hypertrophy mediator. So that's back. Say, okay, eccentric contractions, they're definitely uh, more damage causing. We get rid of them, this very known contributor to hypertrophy, probably a little bit more than concentric, though they're relatively, certainly more than isometric. Um, and, and all of a sudden, we try to get rid of all these things that cause damage. And the, the only thing I think we're left with is don't start like with your MRV or close in a, in a mm -hmm. mesocycle. Uh, and make sure that when you are between sessions, you're appropriately applying the recovery modalities like food and sleep to heal the damage as fast as possible so you can overload as soon as possible. Um, I just don't think there's, you know, because um, I'm not of this opinion that we need to be careful giving advice because people just misinterpret it. Like if you have trouble interpreting advice, go fuck yourself. That's your problem. You're an intellectual person. You, If you know who we are and you listen to us, you're going to have to fucking put your goddamn thinking cap on. Like, oh, you don't want to phrase it like that. You know, people say shit like that. Um, that being said, I think that, you know, there's, um, uh, if you tell a person, okay, like you really got to try to minimize damage, um, you got to say the caveat that, which means don't do too much volume all at once at the same time with a new exercise and make sure you sleep and eat. Uh, and logically design your workout plan, right? So that you like squat heavy Monday, leg press heavy Thursday instead of Monday, Tuesday or some shit like that. So, um, I mean, Eric, do you think there's anything else we can do that that uh, reduces damage but doesn't shoot our uh, application of hypertrophy in the foot? No, I mean, a lot of the stuff we both do. Like, I was as you were talking, I was like, well, you know, actually going from, you know, MEV to MAV in and of itself acts as an intro cycle and gives you some repeated bout effect. Um, one thing, well, yeah, this is not even something you said, but I was trying to think where people might misapply if they do believe damages is causative, they might misapply it. They go, well, I don't want to do high frequency training. Cause you have to, like, let's say to, to appropriately do high frequency training, uh, the volume per session comes down, right? So you're not actually just increasing volume. Um, then they're like, well, I get less sore on that. So therefore it's worse. And I'm like, I don't know about that. That's never been shown. You know, if that was the case, if damage was causative and we assume that the repeated bout effect was more prominent in a higher frequency study with lower volume per session, and then we should be seeing worse growth in the higher frequency studies, but we don't. We just tend to see a plateau. Um, so, uh, yeah, that would be the, the only thing I would put out there. Um, but no, I would say intro cycles, cyclical deloads, having an appropriate stress level per session. Um, you know, what some people could look at it as, oh, well, if damage is causative, then I wouldn't want to do some of the recovery stuff out there. And some of it you don't want to do, like cold water immersion or stuff like that. But, you know, like compression garments or, um, you know, some supplements out there that nutritionally might, might reduce the damage response. I, I see that as a, a positive thing because then it might allow you to train more effectively your next, next session. Uh, versus I'm skeptical of that, to be honest. Yeah. I'm skeptical of the supplements because a lot of them later have been found out to actually like icing, for example, people used to be really excited about because it lets you train more frequently. 
the recent round of literature has shown that icing does in fact reduce, uh, especially like getting into the ice box thing. What the fuck's that thing called? The cryo chamber. Um, it's my excuse to be naked in front of people. But, uh, but other than that, you know, it, it has shown to probably negatively affect adaptation. So I said that search for modalities that are not just eat and sleep um, and take copious amounts of anabolic drugs. <laughs> it's just uh, anything outside of that seems to consistently interfere with hypertrophy as well at the benefit of giving you better recovery or whatever. So, yeah, I, 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 the uh, the cold water immersion cryotherapy definitely has been shown, and I think I think it all comes down to how does it do it. Like, I'm not convinced like compression garments are going to cause an issue because it's basically messing with blood flow, you know. Um, versus there being a temperature stimulus. I'm also not convinced something that you're probably having in your diet, but that you're taking it larger amounts as a supplement uh, that, that may aid in the, the, the speed of, of repair uh, is going to be problematic. But um, I can definitely see when you're messing with, uh, with stuff like cold water immersion or if you're taking NSAs, for example, you know, and you're actually messing with pathways, then sure. Um, but when you're giving more of more of the stuff that your body would already be using or better access to it or better delivery of it uh, to recover, uh, then I, I, would, I would say that's probably a safer uh, route to go down. Although, like you, I would want to see long-term studies on not only uh, muscle damage levels or, or perceptions of recovery and performance, but also were you bigger or stronger in the end? Did this actually do what it's supposed to do? So for, I, I would largely agree. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah, I'm not sure about muscle damage, but I think at the very most extreme that I would let my views entertain would be the do as much damage as possible and then tidal wave the recovery as much as possible to heal as soon as possible to do the most damage again. Practically, that just ends up being do as much volume per week as you can recover from or that you can effectively, you know, recover from and still overload later. Still the same advice, you know, that is generally good anyway. Um, you know, it's very hard to parse that out from just do as much tension application as you can, recover as soon as you can, and then apply as much tension slash volume, et cetera. So I think that the kind of studies we would need to figure out if damage is independently causative hypertrophy um, are similar to the cell swelling kind of studies. Like we now know that cell swelling is a mediator of hypertrophy, but they can swell up a cell in a number of ways that are not related to tension application, like, uh, you know, uh, electrolyte imbalances. And that have actually been shown in cell culture to result in hypertrophy. So now we know that cell swelling is independently without tension hypertrophic. We'd have to kind of damage cells somehow in a similar way that tension does without applying tension. Um, that would be, you know, maybe like, uh, I don't know, uh, just, um, individual cell stretching apparatus. I don't know if they've done any of that. Uh, you just totally passive stretch, no innervation, and then leave the cell alone and see if it grows or if there's any downstream anabolic stimuli. And if, if that's the case, then we're down to at least stretching, uh, as a mediator and maybe the damage from the stretching it would be tough to get little nano robots to go in there and you can chop up the fucking sarcomeres a little bit leave and be like oh time to grow and you know you just get necrosis and die and you're like all right that's the damage hypothesis but you know if you grow then something will come of that we should just try the stab myself in the arm uh by some training program and see what happens you're literally like cutting yourself in the gym. People are like, dude, what are you doing? Are you okay? Like family life just breaking down. You're like, I'm growing. Get the fuck away from me, bro. You're just not ready for these games. 
<laughs> you just haven't read Schoenfeld's paper. This is definitely working. Yeah. That's right. Don't you read literature? What's wrong with you? You just respond in PubMed links. That's the only way you're capable of communicating anymore. I love that when uh, – it's really funny because people doing – I like when the PubMed trolls meet the person who publishes the most in our field, which is Brad. Like some of my favorite interactions of Facebook with Brad is someone's like, well, Brad, don't you think that this and that is the case? And he goes, well, why would you think that that's the case? And they just respond with a PubMed link. And Brad's like, okay, pretend that I know personally who did that study. And I reviewed that study when it was published in GACR. Now, what's your point, you fucking asshole? And he rarely like says that, but he'll just be like, and? And they're like, I thought that was good enough for me to just link a study. It's like, you have to actually think about it, you asshole. Like, I love that shit. Just study link response. Boom. Do the thinking for yourself. Yeah, it's always fun to watch people misapply science and then have a scientist tell them something. Oops. Yeah. Well, guys, um, I want to be very respectful of your time. I appreciate you've already been here for an hour. Um, there was one element I want to move on to. Um, we may have to do that in another episode, um, assuming kind of you guys. Uh, I'm not sure how... I imagine this subject might take a while. It's kind of um, how to assess progress um, and whether or not you're doing enough. So we're kind of, should we save that for another episode at some other time? I'm good if you guys are okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I was going to summarize a little bit there anyway, in terms of, I think there's a lot of points that you guys are agreeing on in terms of what needs to make, like specifically be made hard and harder over time and overload parameters have to be made sure of. And there's a few things about kind of overreaching and kind of muscle damage that aren't completely sure, but um, they might almost come with doing this type of training anyway. And you take care of that through fatigue management. Um, and we have that episode of um, deloads that will be um, live when this comes live as well. And what I did want to move on to, and that is an element of, I know Mike uses kind of the, the soreness as a potential parameter of marking whether we're doing enough um, volume to be producing hypertrophic stimuli. Um, and I think Eric, and I don't want to talk for you, but I think you do some sort of testing in terms of strength gains to assess whether programs are working how you want them to be. Um, at least that's kind of how it's laid out in the muscle um, and strength pyramids, which are fantastic. Um, and I just wanted to see your different viewpoints um, because the way I've interpreted them I would say largely is, I would say Mike's approach is slightly more proactive in terms of making sure that we're doing enough um, by looking at things all the time and various monitoring aspects. Whereas um, Eric yours is more of a reactive approach in terms of seeing how did that mesocycle go? How did our strength levels increase? Um, but that might be a slight kind of too, too far summarized uh, viewpoint. So I don't know if Eric wants to start off in terms of kind of how you're assessing whether um, the person is doing uh, training that is appropriate for their goals in terms of hypertrophy. For sure. Yeah, I, um, I do use performance as the, the main landmark, especially when we're talking to people who are well-trained. Like you literally can see yourself growing if you unless you just really were not dealt a very good hand genetically and are close to a non-responder as, as one can, can physically be, uh, if you train and nothing seems to happen, then maybe take a different sport. But for most people, um, when you're a novice, you can see changes month to month, week to week, even sometimes, uh, even drug-free when you start, just because it's, it's the good times. It's the honeymoon phase. But once you get into a more intermediate or advanced level as someone who's trying to lift weights and who's drug-free, um, 
you sometimes can't even tell the difference until you die down for a show if you're a competitor as to whether or not you made substantial gains. So when you're talking about potentially gaining two to three pounds in a good year of training um, to your physique, there's no real way you can measure that directly unless you've got an MRI at home. So I think I've always used the analogy of you kind of have to think of it like a baker. If you know all the ingredients that should go in, you don't sit there and watch the cake bake every, every, every second, every minute. You have to see when it comes out. And if it didn't go very well, then, you know, next time you bake that cake, you, you learn something. Um, and I'm always open to there being more uh, measures we can take consistently to effectively see if things are going well um, instead of looking at larger chunks of time. Because obviously I want to intervene as soon as something is or isn't working to know you know, well, not it's working. If it is working, it's thumbs up. But if something is not as effective as it could be, I'd love to change it as soon as possible. But I think a lot of the times, if you don't have good measures or you have inconsistent measures that aren't very reliable, you end up chasing ghosts. Um, so that that's the reason why I take a lot of time in, in mesocycle construction. Uh, and I talk a lot about that, how to set up your training. And then we go, right, run this for four to 12 weeks, whatever the a specific length of time should be appropriate to your training age and we see what happens. Uh, and then based on what happens, given if we can assume that the, the conditions or when we, when we actually tested things afterwards uh, are, are good and that they are representative of, of, of the, the, the progress you made, then we can move on from there. Um, not that everything should rely on just one testing day, like an AMRAP and you're, you're always training so, so with so low loads earlier that you can't see progress. That's one of the benefits of using RPE in conjunction with your training is you can also without just fixed percentage of fixed loads, you can't see if you could have done more, but having RPE in there allows you on days when, when you're feeling good or feeling poor to, to adjust from, from the game plan. And, you know, if you run a 12 week cycle with some RPE based loading or in conjunction with percentage, uh, you might see hey, I'm actually just stronger than I was eight weeks ago. Um, and if you're training for hypertrophy and you're stronger, it's unlikely that that is just a purely neuro neuromuscular adaptation. Um, especially in advanced lifters, we know that gains in performance are more related to gains in, in cross-sectional area uh, because a lot of the other, other factors have, I wouldn't say topped out, but they certainly hit a more stable position than they were when you were a novice. Uh, so we can be sure that if you are consistently getting stronger over time as an advanced lifter, you're probably growing. Um, but I do do visual assessments. So when I work with someone, we run blocks of training and I'm looking at pictures of them regularly and, um, you know, also getting feedback from them. When I write a book and I have people assess this on their own, I put a little more emphasis on the performance changes just because it's very difficult to be objectively subjective about yourself, if that makes sense. Cool. Um, and I know in the, in the book itself, you kind of had that, marker of did you kind of progress within this mesocycle yes or no if it was a no where you recovered then yes potentially add more volume and if you weren't recovered potentially draw it back would that be a good summary of what might happen there yeah exactly so like if you so let, let's say we have a mesocycle constructed um it's it's in the it's in the appropriate ballpark for for volume um and I think one difference that I, I often do with, with Mike from here about how we put it into play, and I don't always program like this, but it's a common theme, is that I tend to see a descending volume within a mesocycle while intensity goes up uh, because I typically test at the end. And then we assess whether or not volume needs to go up in the next mesocycle. And if you really back up and if you look at the long-term career progress of a bodybuilder, volume still goes up slightly. 
and I, I should say number of sets because tonnage will go up if you get stronger, but that, that's not necessarily, like we said, the actual load of the bar is, is practically important, but probably not theoretically as important. It's, it's a requirement that you have to lift more weights unless you want to be doing 50 rep sets in a few years. So within a mesocycle, sometimes my volume, my number of sets or number of reps, let's say total reps will, will start declining. Uh, but then the next mesocycle will start higher. Uh, depending on, on the progress made so that we're not making unnecessary jumps in global volume. So the trend when you look at the mesocycle looks downward, but then as you step back and look at multiple, multiple mesocycles, they get strung together to go higher over time. Um, and again, that, that's, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with, with having it go the other way. Um, but I also don't necessarily think that it, you need to focus on a specific time frame for where volume is to be increasing. Like, some people freak out if their volume's not going up workout to workout and like, well, that's probably not appropriate unless it's your first couple of weeks training, you know? But so I think, I think it depends on the time frame. but um, yeah, that's, I don't know. I rambled a lot. I don't know if I answered your question. No, yeah, you definitely did. Um, and did well to explain kind of how you have microcycle to microcycle potentially volume decreases, but over time we do see that progressive overload of volume, which I believe is probably a bit different to how Mike uh, programs. So if Mike, you want to kind of address how you would go about it and anything that kind of Eric said that maybe um, you have a line of thought on there. Yeah. So again, find ourselves uh, unfortunately disagreeing much less than I had planned um, the, um, idea, so, so I'll put it this way. I have two fundamental approaches to monitoring and adjusting and tracking for progression. One is an approach for individuals that run our RP auto templates uh, for physique training. One is an approach for individuals that are, um, more advanced and know their volume landmarks already. So if you know your rough minimum effective volume for a body part, you know your rough maximum recoverable volume, you start closer to the MEV and you work towards your MRV over the mesocycle, and that's it. And then just like everything else Eric said applies after that mesocycle, in the next mesocycle, you recycle uh, the same process again and see if your performance is better. Now, the reason it's very difficult to test performance functionally within a mesocycle is because you have to deal with a confounder of fatigue accumulation. I think through properly applied overload training, fatigue accumulates roughly as fast as performance increases in beginners and intermediates, uh, definitely in intermediates. In advanced individuals, fatigue accumulates faster than performance increases, right? You can accumulate fatigue to drop your squat by 50 pounds over the course of a mesocycle, no problem. Uh, can you accumulate enough adaptation to increase it by 50 pounds? No fucking way, right? So um, you got to be very careful about people saying, you know, week one of my program, I squatted this and that. Week four of my program, I squatted not only five pounds more. Like, well, how much fatigue are you carrying week four through week one? Well, a lot. Well, if you drop that off, it could, it could be your squat went up by 45 pounds. Who knows? So I think it's really good to look at the uh, changes mesocycle to mesocycle for sure. And also like, that's not enough time, you know, week to week. Like, am I growing muscle week to week? Who the fuck knows? You grew like a gram and a half of muscle. Get out of my face. There's no way to measure that. So uh, you just, like Eric said, a very great analogy. You bake a cake, put that motherfucker in the oven. When it comes out, if you fucked up, then you're going to know. But you're not going to look at the oven and be like, oh shit, it's turning brown. It should be turning yellow. Like, yeah, oh, well, you might as well finish baking it because there's nothing you can do at that point to change anything. The that's the people who kind of sort of know where their land volume landmarks. That's how they should go about things. Uh, the reason that in the physique templates we have a plus 
or minus rating system, which I think you can still work into an advanced uh, program, is that um, we have to have some way of people who don't really know their minimum effective volume or their MRV for navigating that uh, topography from one to the other. And the, the way that we proxied it is basically the following. I think, and I would be willing to postulate the following, that if from workouts you are getting not remotely sore, like not even a twinge, not remotely fatigued, and not remotely pumped during, that you're probably under at or under your minimum effective volume. Like there's no way that a meat and potatoes good volume is just not going to fuck you up at all. Right. And this works for high frequency too. Like people don't exactly talk about high frequency. Like it's great. I'm never sore and I feel great. Like they say I'm never sore, but they're like, I, everything feels kind of fucked up. I feel like shit. I'm going to die. Please help. Um, you know, they try to run away from the Bulgarian training center and get on a train, you know, to America, that sort of thing. But um, so if you are basically, we just ask questions about like, how fucked up are you? And, and here's how the algorithm works. If you're not remotely disrupted in any way, you're not getting pumps, you're not getting any little bit of soreness at all from training, you probably, uh, your volume automatically goes up by just a little bit uh, for the next sort of microcycle. We actually work in a half microcycle increment. So the first part of a microcycle feeds into the second, the second feeds into the next part of the first, that sort of thing, because it's a faster autoregulatory adjustment. Um, and then so, so that's number one. So if you just basically don't feel shit, you're probably not training hard enough and you'll probably need to go up. The next thing is if you uh, are just dying, like you're getting crazy sore, like the way we ask for soreness is well, now that you're training this muscle again, like let's say chest is Monday, Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Now that you're training chest Wednesday, are you still sore for Monday? If you're like, yes, I can't move my pecs. I don't give a shit what else you think. You did too much Monday, plain and simple. So the, the feeds forward to the next Monday and reduces the number of sets that you're going to do next Monday. So that, then it goes down, right? And by that path, it kind of keeps you in your maximum adaptive volume. But because you're adapting to the exercises, that ends up rising from right around your MEV to right around your MRV. So the only way we use like the soreness and pumps and how you feel is to, to work away the extremes, right? The definitely too much and the definitely not enough. So like if someone is like, I'm literally incapable of performing because I'm getting so sore and so fatigued, we know that's probably too much for, ma- for optimal hypertrophy or anything close. If someone's literally just not feeling shit and they're like, dude, I could do triple the work and still not get sore, clearly they probably need more work to get more hypertrophy. So as long as we constrain them to that range, using those sort of inf- that information for autoregulation, we let them go after that. And of course, that all comes with repetitions and reserve guidelines. Like week one is three reps in reserve. Week two is three reps in reserve because they get used to the exercises much, much a lot between week one and week two. And then it's two reps in reserve, one rep in reserve, deload, that sort of thing. So that's the only sort of autoregulation sort of insight of are you within that general hypertrophy range that we use because we just don't know anything. You know, there's thousands of people have bought these things. The fuck, I know what their volume is, right? We start them really low and the algorithm potentially takes them as high as they need to get good workouts and never higher. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, some people like, some people like a uh, message us questions and they're like, so it's week two and I'm sore as fuck. Should I be plus like plus one in cause the plus one ad sets. Should I plus one? I'm like, no, you didn't fucking read the document. You're going to die. There's, you know, some people just like, we have to deal with egos of course. Cause they just plus one as a matter of course, like if they're not adding sets, they think there's something morally wrong with them. So, so we definitely just want to keep people in that middle range and let the volume kind of rise throughout. Other than that, 
totally um, what everything Eric said was great. And, and I think we really have to be skeptical of progress analyses that are any shorter than mesocycle length. Um, that, that whole baking the cake thing, the analogy, I think our, our, our um, plus one, minus one auto regulation system is kind of like a baking thermometer. Like we don't know a whole lot, right? We don't know what the fuck the cake looks like, but we know the temperature is either way too low or way too high. But as long as it's between 400 and 450 degrees, fucking golden, bake the cake, mesocycle later for advanced athletes two or three mesocycles later you're going to find out what's going on one quick little thing how do you know if your back is getting bigger for three mesocycles in a row you do bent over barbell rows you improve in sets of 10 for barbell rows by let's say 15 kilos total but you're not sure if that's just neural adaptation or some combination of neural adaptation and hypertrophy so what you do is three mesocycles after that, you focus on underhand barbell rows, different exercise, much different, different technique, and you do make the same PRs. How do you know if you gain muscle? When you come back to overhand barbell rows again, are you hitting PRs pretty fucking quick? If the answer is yes, you're bigger because you just have more muscle and there's no way to explain it in any way. If you're not and you have to struggle for months to get back to hitting any PRs, ooh, you probably didn't get that much bigger. And, and, and again, the advanced athlete might have to do another two months of getting used to that movement to start hitting all-time PRs. But basically, over the months slash years, if you're PRing for reps on movements, you're getting bigger because you don't get neural adaptation over the years, right? A couple months later, you're as good as you're going to be at high bar squatting in a fundamental sense that's not like five pounds up or down. Um, and that's why I'm a huge fan of tracking long-term compound heavy basic numbers. You know, I tell people like, they don't like dumbass Instagram posts. I don't want to post the fucking same. I'm tired of myself on Instagram. I'm just gonna, I swear to God, it pains me to post that thing. But I like post a back picture, right? It's huge erectors. And I'm like, how do you get this back? You bent row 315 for four sets of 10 strict from the ground all the way to the tummy without moving. That's the only way I know how to truly guarantee myself muscle size. When I do that with 335, I promise you I'll have a bigger back. That's what people need to focus on in the long term to really know that. Because, you know, bodybuilders, and I'm sure Eric's coached a bunch of clients that are like this. They're like, you know, I didn't PR, but like I felt that the movement has like more quality or whatever. Like, yeah, you can – that might be growing you more, but like, man, I just wouldn't put that in the bank. You know what I mean? So – my thoughts brilliant i think both of you overall might have slightly different kind of on the minute level in terms of microcycles and microcycles they look differently but when we look and we have that bird's eye view you're also having progressive overloads of volume over the long term and you're using kind of appropriate strength assessments to see whether it's appropriate or not and um, the amount you're doing and i think mike you just adjust it on a kind of more frequent basis potentially um and eric does it on a kind of longer term view but overall there's very little differences there at all i think the viewer is probably going to be a bit disappointed pissed <laughs> Eric, was there anything you wanted to um, respond to on what Mike said, or are you happy where we are? No, I, I found myself largely agreeing for the most Perfect. part. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so, if either both of you are happy with where we've left kind of this progressive overload discussion, um, I'm very happy, and I'm sure the viewers will be and the listeners will be really happy with your discussion there. I thought it was really, really interesting, very fruitful, and I think you kind of laid out a lot of really important aspects of this for hypertrophy. So I want to thank you massively, both of you, for coming on and sharing your knowledge. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, thanks, thanks so much, Steve. This is always really fun, and I always end up learning a bunch of shit, too, when I talk to you folks. So.
That's how I get my CEUs, man. That's it. <laughs> Being on the podcast counts for CEUs. I got to check. Man, that'd be so sweet. <laughs> awesome, guys. Thank you very much. And I hope we can do this again. Thank you all the listeners for watching. Um, and we will talk to you soon.